Going through his life chronologically, we're not doing a biographical study of his life. Instead, we're, we're looking at specific events in the life of Jesus and investigating them for uh, practical resources that can apply to outreach. See, our goal has been to look at Jesus' example and learn from it because throughout the New Testament, he's the one that we are called to imitate. He's the one that we are told to follow. He's the one that we're to go and do likewise. And thus far, we've, we've looked at his trip to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old, and we've, we've looked at uh, that first miracle at the wedding in Cana. We've, we've examined his rejection at Nazareth. We've looked at his encounter with a, uh, his interaction, really, with an, a Samaritan woman. And today we're going to turn our attention to one of his most well-known miracles. It's actually the one miracle that appears in all four gospel accounts. The fact that it's the, the only miracle that makes it into all four accounts makes it unique. It's the feeding of the 5,000, which we just read from Mark chapter 6. You can also find it in, in Matthew chapter 14, Luke chapter 9, and John chapter 6. And I've often thought, if there was one miracle that I could go back in time and witness, this is the one I would choose. And there, there are many reasons why I'd, I would choose this one. Uh, one, I'm, I'm interested in the physics involved. Or maybe the lack thereof. Because where did this continuous source of bread and fish come from? We know he's got the, the five loaves, the two fish, and he's breaking them. And it just keeps pouring out. If I was standing there looking over his shoulder, would it look like nothing ever tore off when he broke it? Or would it just magically reappear in his other hand? What, how did it happen? How did, it, how did, the, how did this bread keep producing? And how did this fish keep multiplying? I would love to sit there and, and watch his hands to see how it happened. I'm also very intrigued by the logistics involved. We know there were 5,000 men. We also know that that means there were more people than just 5,000 because it didn't number the women and children. Exactly how many people were on this hillside? How many people were actually eating? How long did it take for the apostles to make the rounds, supplying people with as much as they wanted till they were satisfied? Did Jesus' hands get tired of breaking after a while? I mean, think about how long that took for him to keep doing that until everybody ate. I'm interested in the logistics. And I'm also interested in the critics. Because I, I wonder... I wonder if there were people out there in that audience that would have acted like we would if this happened today. Think about it. If this miracle happened today, someone would raise their hand and go, hey, is this bread gluten-free? Um, hey, hey, was, were those fish locally sourced? or Do they have any antibiotics in them? I mean, mercury poisoning, we got to worry about that, right? And then somebody would raise their hand and say, hey, you're not wearing gloves. That's not very sanitary. Where's your hairnet? you got that long hair, right? You know, I imagine that if this happened today, we would sit there and criticize this so much 
that obviously we'd miss the point. And I wonder if there was anybody out there in that audience going, hey, I, I don't really like this type of bread. Do you got anything else? I mean, is it like Subway? Can I get some with cheese embedded in it? I wonder if there are people like that in the audience. I'm just fascinated by this miracle. I would love to have witnessed it. But as I studied this miracle over the past several days in preparation for this lesson, it's not the big details that stood out to me. It's the little details. It's the little things that are mentioned in the story that caused me to realize there's something here for you and I to glean about going and doing. Now, you may recall last week when we studied John chapter 4 and Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman, our focus was on the practical. We were looking at some practical how-to steps for going and doing. This morning, I, I want to continue the emphasis on how we go and do, but I'm going to turn from the practical to the internal. In other words, I want to focus on going and doing with the right attitude or the right spirit. So as we examine the feeding of the 5,000, we're going to ask the question, what kind of spirit does going and doing require? And the first thing that stood out to me is that going and doing requires a spirit of hospitality. I want you to notice this if you turn in Mark chapter 6. Look at verse 31 and 32. It sets up this account of the feeding of the 5,000. And it tells us that Jesus said to his apostles, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat, in the boat, to a desolate place by themselves. In other words, Jesus, before we get to the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus invited his apostles, excuse me, his apostles, to go on a sort of retreat. It was Jesus' intent for them to withdraw to this desolate place and spend some time by themselves, apart from the hustle and bustle of their ministry. He was taking them away, even if for a brief time, to recuperate. But the crowd followed them. They were trying to get away for just a moment to rest, to eat, because they weren't able to do that because the crowds were so enormous. And yet when they made it to their retreat location, lo and behold, the people showed up. Wouldn't that frustrate you? Wouldn't that agitate you? Wouldn't that even disappoint you? You're finally going to get some rest. And the people barged in. Turn over to Luke chapter 9 very quickly. I want you to notice one verse in, in Luke, Luke's account of this story because there's something said about Jesus that's too important to miss. In Luke's account, in chapter 9, verse 11, we're told that he welcomed the crowd. He welcomed them. 
And then he went into his teaching and healing mode. But despite intentionally going somewhere to get a break, when those people showed up, Jesus said, come on in. You're welcome here. And started doing his ministry instantly. Jesus didn't respond to their presence with hostility, which is probably what you and I would have done. He responded to that crowd's presence with hospitality. To be hospitable is to be friendly and welcoming to strangers. At least that's the Google definition, and we know Google's right on everything, right? To be friendly and and welcoming to strangers. When we think about hospitality, we automatically think that means we've got to bring people into our house, right? Hospitality is much bigger than that. Hospitality can simply be welcoming someone into your life. Jesus didn't have a house to bring people into. That doesn't mean he wasn't hospitable. He welcomed these strangers in despite the fact that that went against everything he was trying to accomplish in that one moment. And if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to go and do likewise, then we're going to have to embrace a spirit of hospitality. We're going to have to be welcoming to strangers. And that's a little bit scary, isn't it? But you know what's even more scary? Not being hospitable. Because sometimes I don't think we realize what all Scripture teaches about hospitality. For one, Scripture teaches us that hospitality is a demonstration of our love for other people. And, And what's part two of the greatest command? Love your neighbors as yourselves. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, Paul instructs us to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor. Three verses later, Romans chapter 12 and verse 13, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, Peter instructs us to keep loving one another earnestly. Then in the very next verse, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, he instructs us to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, those two verses, those two sections of Scripture, I should say, they, they presented a correlation between love and hospitality. In other words, hospitality is a demonstration of your love for other people. But you may be thinking, that said one another. That, those instructions were in the context of the church that we're to love one another as brothers and sisters in the church and show hospitality to one another as brothers and sisters in the church. But let me take you to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. One of the most theologically complicated verses in all of Scripture, and I have no intentions of uncomplicating it, just want you to acknowledge its existence because I think that's all we're supposed to do with it. Hebrews 13 and verse 2 tells us to show hospitality to who? 
to strangers, because in so doing, some have entertained angels. Now, I don't comprehend everything about that. I don't think I need to. I just need to take it as it is. And what it is is an instruction to show hospitality, not just to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but even to people you don't know. Because hospitality is a demonstration of our love. You know what else hospitality is? It's an indication of maturity. One of the things I find fascinating is when you go to the uh, uh, qualifications of elders, whether you're looking in, in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1, it doesn't matter, because in both lists, hospitality is a qualification of being a shepherd in the church of our Lord. Not only that, but you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we have this list of, of qualifications to be a widow who is care, taken care of by the church. And one of those qualifications is hospitality. Now, I'm not trying to, to elevate the widow status to the shepherd status. I'm just trying to point something out that's quite simple. That in the New Testament, hospitality is a qualification of church leaders as well as, for lack of better terms, church workers. And so it's one of those traits that indicates some degree of spiritual maturity. If you can't be an elder of a church or a church-sponsored widow without being hospitable, then obviously hospitality is a quality that's held in high regard. Now I want to take you to a book we don't go to very often, and that's the book of 3 John. Because in 3 John we're going to see that hospitality has an impact on our salvation. In his third epistle, John condemned the lack of hospitality shown by a guy named Diotrephes. You can read about this in verses 9 and 10. He says that Diotrephes was refusing to welcome the brothers, and he was even stopping those who wanted to and putting those people out of the church. After identifying Diotrephes' sin here, John said in verse 11 of 3 John, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. The fact that John associated an inhospitable spirit with evil implies that a failure to be hospitable is a sin that prevents us from seeing God, from being one of God's children. See, hospitality matters more than we might realize. And here at the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus welcomed that crowd, despite the fact that he was there to rest, demonstrates to us that we're to be a people who are hospitable. So here's the question of the day, and don't assume that means the sermon's almost over because we still got two more to go. Here's the question of the section. There, I'll change that. Are you known for hospitality? I, I, I don't mean are, are, are you good at, at bringing over people from church to your house. I mean, are you known for welcoming those people you don't know? Are you willing to 
interact with somebody who's a stranger because you see that they're in need? Are you willing to invest in someone and bring them into your life, welcoming, welcoming them into your life, not knowing the risks nor the rewards at the outset? Are you willing to do that? Do you realize that when Jesus welcomed this crowd and interrupted his retreat, do you know why he was on the retreat? If you look at the verses that precede this story in Mark's account and Luke's account, you'll find out that the apostles had just gotten back from an evangelistic campaign. They were worn out, but they had just got done doing the work of the Lord. If you look at Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 14, you find out that Jesus had just learned that John the Baptist was killed. His cousin, the one who baptized him, his forerunner, had just been executed. Jesus was grieving, and he welcomed these people in a moment where he had gone aside to be by himself with his apostles for a while. You know what that tells me? That I probably don't have a good excuse for not welcoming people if our Lord did it when he was grieving. So are you hospitable or not? Ultimately, the real question is, are you like Jesus or not? Because Jesus was obviously hospitable. If we're going to go and do like Jesus, it's got to start with a spirit of hospitality. But it's also got to include a spirit of responsibility. One other small detail, and mind you, I I said we were going to be focusing on the minor details of the story. One other small detail that stands out to me appears in verse 36 of Mark 6. Actually, it's verse 37, I should say. Jesus' apostles make it known to him that it's late in the day. That it's dinner time, in essence. And that they've got this whole crowd of people there who are going to get hungry. And so they suggested to Jesus that he disperse the crowd so that they can go out and find their own food to eat. But look at what Jesus said to the apostles, Mark chapter 6, verse 37. He said, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Jesus put the responsibility of tending to the needs of the crowd on his followers in that moment. Now that's interesting to me because if you go over to John's account in John chapter 6 and look at verse 6, we're told that in regards to the conversation about acquiring food for the crowd, Jesus said this to test the apostles for he himself knew what he would do. When I read that in John, it makes it easy for me to dismiss Jesus' instructions for the disciples to feed this crowd. It's easy for me to dismiss that instruction as something pre-planned. As if he involved them just so that he would, just so that it would be evident that this dilemma was beyond the scope of their ability to resolve. And so when he resolved it, it would be evident to all that he was more than a man. But 
But I don't think Jesus said, you give them something to eat because he wanted to show them that they couldn't. I think Jesus said, you give them something to eat because after he was gone, he intended for them to become the agents through whom such needs would be met. I want you to think about some of the instructions that Jesus gave his followers during his ministry. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 42, Jesus said, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He then went on to talk about the proper attitude to have when you give to the needy in Matthew chapter 6. When you give to the needy. That word when indicates an expectation. It indicates that he assumed a time would come that his followers would, in fact, give to the needy. Then you can go, to, go over to Luke chapter 12 and verse 33. And there Jesus instructed his disciples to sell your possessions and give to the needy. And then he went on to equate such benevolent activity as a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Such a statement implies that being benevolent is a salvation issue in the sense that it is the means through which you invest in your eternal future. And such teachings as what we find in Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 12, such teachings led the first century church to take ownership for meeting the needs of others. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 45, the early church is described as selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 34, that, that description is built upon uh, by Luke saying, There was not a needy person among the church, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So I believe the apostles got the message that Jesus was communicating when he said, you give them something to eat. They understood that as his followers, they would one day be responsible for meeting the needs of people just like he did. When we look at this detail, and we look at Jesus, the fact that Jesus put the onus of feeding this crowd initially on his followers. I think we can't overlook the fact that Jesus calls on his followers today to still be the agents through whom needs are met. Do you appreciate that responsibility? Have you taken ownership of meeting the needs of others? That doesn't mean you have to meet everyone's needs. That doesn't mean you have to write a blank check to anyone who asks. That doesn't mean that every person in the world must come to you to have their needs met. If you journey through the book of Acts, one thing you'll see is that benevolence and service were done at a congregational and individual level. We read two passages in Acts 2 and Acts 4 where the congregation contributed to the needs of those who were in need. 
I lost my sentence, I'm sorry. But journey through Acts. You come across someone named Tabitha that Ben spoke about just a few weeks ago on Wednesday night. A great lesson. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. Also known as Dorcas. Tabitha sounds better. And here's this woman who just made it her life mission to clothe people. Individually, she's contributing to the needs of others. Are you like her? Are you willing yourself, you, to take responsibility for helping people? Are you willing to be benevolent? Are you willing to be charitable? Are you willing to serve someone else? Do you have a spirit of responsibility, a spirit like that of Nehemiah, who when he heard about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, decided he, he needed to do something about it. He didn't need to wait on somebody else. He packed his bags, he went to the king, he got permission, and he took off. Do you have that kind of personal initiative to serve the kingdom of heaven by helping to meet the needs of someone else? That's the beauty of our go and do theme this year. If you've forgotten about it, if you never picked up one of those brochures out there, be sure to check them out because our goal this year is to create some opportunities for you to get involved in serving other people. And you look at the opportunities that, that we have scheduled as a congregation but intended for you to be involved as an individual. You look at them. They range from just collecting stuff for those in need to physically serving those in need in a variety of ways. Have you decided how in 2021 you're going to take ownership? Because if not, what are you waiting on? We're called to go and do likewise. Jesus himself modeled a spirit of responding to the needs of the people. Now, we can't make a miracle happen, but that doesn't mean we can't feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick, visit the imprisoned, and so on. Going and doing requires not only a spirit of hospitality, but it does require a spirit of responsibility. And one last thing, it requires a spirit of humility. No miracle demonstrated Jesus' messiahship better than the feeding of the 5,000. This is evident when you can notice the parallels between this miracle and the wilderness wanderings involved in the exodus. I want to share four parallels with you this morning very quickly. The first parallel is the location. This miracle occurred in a desolate place. 
Go look at the Exodus and, and the entire wilderness wandering and it's occurring in a desolate place, a place where they often encountered undrinkable water or the absence of water altogether. At least three times recorded in Scripture, God had to either fix undrinkable water or make water appear. And it was also so desolate that there was nothing to eat. So what did God do? He put man out in the morning and sent quail in the evening. Because they were in a desolate place during the wilderness wandering. A second parallel comes from a statement Jesus made in Mark chapter 6 and verse 34. When he saw those crowds, he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that observation made by Jesus recalls Moses' description of Israel in Numbers chapter 27 and verse 17. Moses requested that God appoint a replacement for him once he passed away. And he said this, Let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. That comparison is another parallel. Then there's the organization. You remember Jesus, and you can look at Mark chapter 6, verse 39 and 40, had them sit in groups of 50s and 100s before they distributed the food. That organization, that, that disbursement of the crowds in that fashion recalls the advice that Moses' father-in-law Jethro gave him about appointing judges. In Exodus chapter 18, verse 21 and 22, Jethro said, Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. And then, of course, I've already alluded to it, but there's the, the substance involved as a parallel. When it came time to feed the people, Jesus broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. In the wilderness, the Israelites were fed manna, which Moses called the bread that the Lord has given you to eat, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 15. And we're told that every morning the Israelites gathered the manna, as much as he could eat. Exodus chapter 16, verse 21. All of these parallels are easy for you and I to miss. But a first century Jew who has been waiting for the Lord to raise up a prophet like Moses according to the prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 would not have missed that connection. And that's why, according to John 6 and verse 15, the crowd wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. But Jesus didn't let that happen. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't accomplish his goal, though. 
What Jesus sought to achieve in the feeding of the 5,000 beyond just meeting their, their needs was to reveal himself to them as the Messiah. In fact, all of Jesus' miracles were intended to reveal his identity as the Christ. Now, what does this have to do with humility? Jesus expects our service to others to accomplish the same thing he did. Do you remember what he told the apostles after he washed their feet? John chapter 13, verse 15, he said, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, no servant or a servant is not greater than his master. After stating the expectation that we imitate him, Jesus referred to his followers as servants. That is a very humiliating title because it implies inferior status. It connotes a submissive position. But it's a very necessary title. That's because unless you're willing to embrace the identity of a servant, you will completely negate the ultimate objective of going and doing. See, the purpose of our service to others is not to boost our heavenly portfolio. It's not to, in, 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 to enlarge our list of credentials. It's not even to develop our reputation in the community. Even though all those things can be good side benefits of serving people, they are not the ultimate purpose. The purpose of going and doing is to introduce people to Jesus. And just a few verses after Jesus said, you should do as I have done to you. He emphasized love as the critical component of such imitation. And then declared in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Here's the point. Jesus expects our service, our benevolence, our, our charity. He expects all of that to point to him just like his loaves and fishes miracle pointed to his identity as the Messiah. And the only way we can consistently make that happen, the only way that we can constantly keep Jesus pointed toward in our efforts is by putting on humility, as Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 instructs. Humility is about minimizing ourselves in order to maximize Christ. Humility is about doing that which brings glory to him rather than ourselves. And keeping that purpose in focus requires a spirit of humility that understands what Paul was saying in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, when he said, whatever you do, do it for the Lord and not for men. Because you're serving the Lord Christ. Do you possess a spirit of humility? 
Do you understand that everything you do is, is not about you? Do you accept that whatever service you render to others, what, whatever benevolence you engage in, whatever giving you do, whatever you go and do is not about you? It's about pointing people to the only one that can save them. It's about making much of Christ by making little of ourselves. See, when we look at the loaves and fishes miracle, when we look at the feeding of the 5,000, it's easy for us to get caught up in the big details. It's easy for us to ask the questions like, how did he do it? How much was left over? Is this the origins of Golden Corral? It's easy for us to ask silly questions that deserve no answer whatsoever. And it's harder for us to realize that this miracle clarifies the kind of people we ought to be when it comes to service. Do you have a spirit of hospitality? Do you have a spirit of responsibility? Do you have a spirit of humility? Because if you lack any of those, then your going and doing might be compromised. It's one thing to know how to go and do strategically. It's another thing to know how to go and do internally. And if we go and do with the right spirit, we might just reflect the one who sent us in the first place. It's my prayer that all of us will commit to going and doing as we've been talking about for these many weeks now. But it's also my prayer that we'll do it with the right attitude. This morning, if in this study you come to recognize that maybe your attitude is not the right attitude about serving people, then we offer the invitation for you to correct it. This morning, if you come today And you've never made a decision to become a child of God. We invite you to make that decision today because he truly is the Messiah, Christ, the Son of the living God, your Savior. This morning, we all have needs, just like those men and women who were present when Jesus broke the bread. And dispersed it. What's your need today? Because just as he can feed 5,000 to meet their needs, 
he can help with yours too. Won't you bring them to him while together we stand and sing?